might remember the story of, of Nathan coming to speak to King David. David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba and gone through that line of sin and down a path of, that led to the murder of, of Bathsheba's wife. And then the prophet Nathan is sent to King David and he tells them this interesting story. Tells him this story about two different men. One is rich. He's got lots of sheep. One is poor. He's only got one sheep. It's like this pet sheep that he keeps with him. And the, a guest comes to the rich man. And the rich man doesn't want to give of anything in his fold. And so he takes the poor man's sheep and uses it instead. And Nathan is, is telling this story to King David. And King David is incensed by this. He's angered by this. He says, this man who has done this thing, who is this rich man who has preyed upon the poor and taken this poor man's lamb, he deserves to die. He deserves to pay for this over and over again. Five times what he took. And then we see the hook from Nathan. As he expertly walks David through this, setting the stage for him to then say that you are that man. You're that man. If I were to ask most of you, what do we do with people who are unjust or unloving or unfaithful or evil or wicked who prey upon the poor or take from others, my guess is that most of you wouldn't say we should do nothing. Most of us would say, like, we want justice to be done. Let's do what's right. What they've done, let's, let's do back to them. Like, we, we don't want nothing to happen. We all have this natural sense of justice, and we desire retribution for wrong. And the problem with that is the same problem that King David had, is that when we want justice, when we want retribution, we have to know that the problem is clear, that we too are those people. That we are all for action on others for their sins and their unfaithfulness, for their injustice. We want that. But what if that then is turned to us and falls upon us? Well, in the book of Joel, the people of God were in a spot like that. They were hearing the prophets speak and during this time, and, and hearing the prophets speak would have, would have been good in some ways. They would have heard about, and we see over and over again in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. And for the people of God, the day of the Lord should have been and would have been most of the time, would have thought in their own minds, they would have thought, this is a great day to come. We can rally behind this call of the day to the Lord, because here's what happens on that day. We are going to have all of our struggles are going to cease on that day. Our enemies are going to be put to flight, like, bring on the day of the Lord. They would have been all for it until one prophet, Joel, and there were many others who do the same thing as well, turn to them and say, no, this is for you too. The judgment that's going to be poured out on the day of the Lord isn't just for those out there, the people of God. You need to hear that some of you within the camp are also enemies of God. So the day of the Lord, the judgment that God is going to bring is also pointed at you. And this is the book of Joel. Joel speaks of this day showing the people of God what they deserve. It doesn't stop there. He gives them an invitation to respond and to repent. And then he prophesies about what they'll receive. So the story of Joel is also our story. We get to see and walk through what, what we deserve, what we're invited into, and also what we'll receive if responded. The result. We start with what we deserve. And falling in line with all the faithful prophets, Joel gets to describe judgment very vividly. Joel chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Here's what's happening. There's a disaster has fallen upon the people of God. And he's looking around and he's reminding them and he's, he's uh, almost acknowledging this commonly held truth that this is bad. This is really... Has anything been seen like this before? It's so bad that he says this in verse 4. This is his description of how bad things are. That what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. You get the picture here, right? I, nothing is left behind. It is total devastation. The description continues. We're going to skip down to verse 16. 
Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness are cut off basically from the house of our God. The seed shrivels under the clods and the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts even, the beasts are groaning. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up. This is a picture of total devastation, total destruction. Started off with this picture in verse 4 of locusts, of of what one has left behind the other eaten, what that one left behind the next one has eaten. It is devastating picture. Now there's this question of, of what are the are these actual locusts in verse 4? They're kind of described and continue to describe in, in chapter 1 and 2 as, as an army. So is it an army of locusts or is the locust kind of a description of an actual army? And there's debate about that and I don't know which way really we need to go. It doesn't matter uh, in the end because what is pictured for sure is judgment. And it's total destruction for them. Whether it's a locust plague, which would have been real and happened to them before, or an army, which would have been real and happened to them. Whatever's going on is is a picture of total destruction that they know about. That they're looking around and seeing. And we need to be reminded, once again, that these are real people. These are real problems that they're having. That they are looking around and everything is desolate. That they don't have any crops. That they don't have any seed to make more crops. Like They are in a complete economic crisis. And it is devastating to them and even to their animals. They're in this place where you can see it would be real easy for them to be depressed. Completely hopeless. I mean, how do you solve this problem? How do you get yourself out of this mess when you can't even plant more crops because you don't have anything? Everything is gone. But Joel, by the word of the Lord, he's looking around at the devastation and the destruction, and he starts interpreting it for them. In other words, what Joel is doing is he's looking around, and he's encouraging them, look around, has anything happened like this before? And he's encouraging them to start thinking, is there some meaning in this? Would God want us to hear something and know something from this? And so by declaring the word of the Lord to them in the middle of this, he's reminding them that God is not absent or distant from their problems. That He's with them. And in devastation, and in suffering, and in disaster, there is always this temptation for the people of God to think that God is absent. That He's not really there. That He does not care what's going on. All of those things would have been thoughts that these people would have thought through. Where's God now? But this is a great reminder as Joel, speaking by the prompting of God, carried along by the Spirit of God, he is reminding them that that God is there. That He hasn't left them. And He's encouraging them and encouraging all readers that that they need to look at things, all things, through a a better theological lens. That is that Joel is implying that there is meaning here. That's why he's encouraging them to look around. There's something going on here. And and they should have been clued into this. I mean, they're part of what we call the Old Covenant. That was made at Sinai where there were... God was saying, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And here's some things that you need to do. And there are blessings and cursings that come with that. If you do good and you do the right things, blessing will follow. If you turn away from me, there are all sorts of things that were going to fall upon them. And so they ought to know that there's, there's judgment for their falling away or running away from the Lord. And that is what Joel is getting at. That there is destruction, there's devastation all around you because of your sin. Sin always has decaying effects. It always has corrupting effects. This was what was taught in that covenant. That if you sin, it goes badly for you because sin is bad for you. That was part of what God was training them in. And and so even if we think it is locusts that are coming, and it's kind of what we would call natural processes, there's just a swarm of locusts that are coming and destroying their crops, that can still be the judgment of God. And even if it's supernatural, where there's amazing locusts that are just hoarding down like in Exodus and they're coming out, this is the judgment of God. This is what He's getting them to see, that He's inviting them to look around with this point of view, a a better theological lens, and start thinking rightly, seeing this devastation rightly. And here's the, the thing, is that that is good news. 
And that's interesting, right? Like, we're talking about devastation and destruction, and I, and I think this is good news, and that Joel is actually saying good news. And here's why. If it's just a famine, if it's just like a bug problem, if it's just like economic crisis, like, they may not be able to get out of that. I mean, this is what happens, is that when things dry up and you have no food, like, nations are wiped out that way. It's possible they could get out of it, but, but they might not be able to fix the problem. But when... But when Joel comes and speaks, he's saying that there is a problem and we can know what it is. If, if we misdiagnose problems, that always leads to wrong treatments. But if we, if we know the problem, then we can actually go at treating it rightly. If the problem is really sin, then they ought to know that God has already given them the remedy for sin. In the Old Covenant, He gave them remedies. He told them, here's how you can return. Here's how you can repent. Here's how you can do these things, returning to the Lord. And we can do the same thing. We can look around our world. We can look around our lives. We need to look with a a right theological lens informed by the Scripture, and we can see the problem. And there are all sorts of problems, and we can label them in all sorts of ways, but here is the problem, is this sin. It's sin, and it alienates us from God. It alienates alienates us from one another. It has corrupting effects. It has decaying effects, and it has destroying effects all the time. And the world will look at all these things. They'll look around and they'll diagnose the problem in all sorts of ways. That the world's main problem is intolerance. If we just all got along better, if we're all more tolerant, then things would be great. Or the, the world's problem is education. If we just rightly educated people, then, then we would all get along. Everything would be better. You could point to a number of different things. Could be the problem is religion. People will say that. If, and all these things in the name of God. That's the problem with this world. If we just got rid of that, then that would make everything better. And yet, as we address those kind of problems together, the, the cure is elusive. Is it not? We still have problems all around us as we're trying to do this. And why? Why is that the case? Because we have a misdiagnosis. And where you misdiagnose, you're going to treat wrong. What we're, what we're treating is symptoms and not the roots. And so you, you might be able to make some progress, you might be able to take two steps forward, but you're always going to take one step back when you misdiagnose, because you cannot cure or eradicate the problem completely if you're addressing the wrong thing. And as Christians here, we have a compelling message to the world who is looking to diagnose things, who is looking for a cure. We get to say that sin is the problem out there and in me. Sin's the problem. It has alienated us from God. It's alienated us from one another. It's put distance between us. It has caused issues. It's corrupted. It's destroyed. It's broken down everything. And we get to say, but there's a solution. Amen. That there's something that we can do about this that can actually address the problem. We know that to be Jesus. Who came to, to take out sin and death. So there's meaning around us, all around us, that points us to God. Even as we look at natural or supernatural things, we can say, like, we know the issue, we know the solution. And because there's meaning in this plague, that gives more gravity to what he's saying, more urgency to his call to respond. And he does call them to respond. We're just going to quickly hit some of these, but 1-5, he says, Awake you drunkards. 1-8, Laments like a virgin wearing sackcloth. One nine, the, the grain offering, the drink offering are cut off, and so the priests are to mourn. The ministers of the Lord are to mourn. In verse eleven, he says, "Be ashamed, be ashamed, wail, you vine dressers." I mean, he's he's telling them and calling them like, "This is what's going on." We we can see it through the right lens, so we can see the problem, and, and he's calling for response, and he gives this vivid picture of destruction, so that he can appeal to them to lament. To mourn, to have sorrow for what's going on. He's building up the the intensity of what's going on. He says in verse 13, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. You might notice that he has hit on elders and priests and ministers. Over there, the prophets are really hard on the leadership. They're really hard on kings. They're really hard on priests. They go after them. He says, Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord. And cry out to the Lord. Put on sackcloth. This has been the the garb for for, uh, lamenting. It's a ritual garb that you put on to say like we are sorry for our sin. It's humble clothing. 
days is mourning clothing. And he says to do this day and night, showing how excruciating this problem is, how deep it really is. That you don't just stop in the day, go all day and all night. And all of these things are meant to grab their attention because there's more coming. Verse 15 in chapter 1. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So he's spoken of things that are present, that are destroying, that are devastating right now. And he's also pointing to something to come. The day of the Lord is near. Chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. And they would have thought, right? Rallying cry. The day of the Lord is near. Put the enemies to flight. Like, let's do this thing. But here's what he says. This is a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like the blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people there. Like has never been seen before. Nor will be again after. Them through the years of all generations. There's this description coming of the day of the Lord of this great army. And he continues, I'm going to go down to verse 7. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his own way. Skip down again to verse 11. That the Lord utters his voice before his army, and his camp is exceedingly great. And he execute his word, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? They would have thought the day of the Lord is a day to look forward to. Remember when we talked about Obadiah and he's bringing the day of the Lord upon the Edomites. They're thinking, yes, bring it to them. They are such jerks to us all the time. Like, hammer them hard, God. And now he's talking about the day of the Lord. And he says, for the people of God, this day is going to be like a mighty army coming against you. This is a day of gloom and darkness for you. This is not a rallying cry for you anymore. This is a day of dread for you. It is vividly portrayed here as this day of devastation, of armies creeping upon them that cannot be stopped, that are going at the command of God. This is devastation for the people of God. Because here's the thing. They think we're God's on our side, right? And so surely the day of the Lord will be good. But here's the problem is that their sin had made them enemies with God. They are now the enemies of God because of their sin. The, the problem is not that God's on their side or not. It's that they're not on His side. That they have gone away from the Lord. This is why He says, blow a trumpet, sound the alarm. Everybody should tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming and it's near. This will be a day of dread, and He says, one that none can endure. So now they have upon them, if you could just put yourself there, the, the weight of their current devastation, and this warning and threat of future judgments. I mean, this is a heavy weight. This is what the prophets do often. They throw heavy burdens on the people to get them to see how devastating, how weighty their sin and their lives really are. And he uses vivid imagery to make them know that they would be sure not to miss how bad their situation is before God. That they deserve, because of their sin, their present devastation, that they deserve this forecast of certain doom and destruction that no one can endure because of their sin. And this is the wages of sin. It is destruction and devastation. And it is true for us too. That sin always destroys now. We see its effects in our own lives now. But it also is storing up for us wrath and judgment if it's continued. So Romans 1 says it this way. Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All of it. Your sin is storing up wrath for you. Chapter 2 he says this. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath on the day of wrath. In Colossians 3, and Paul does this often, he will list out some sins. Greed, sexual immorality, anger, all these things. And then he will say, like he does here in Colossians 3, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Unchecked sin is leading up to wrath from God. It's not just true when the prophets spoke. It is true today. That our sin is storing up wrath for us. That there's this picture of devastation with the forecast of total destruction and death that none can endure. That is a message for us too. 
This is words from Joel that we need to heed. So along with Joel's audience, we need to see that this is what we deserve for our sin. you feel the weight of that? I mean, he uses kind of imagery and pictures, and maybe we're not good there, so we think it puts a little distance between us and what's going on, but Joel very much wants his audience to feel the weight of sin and destruction. Hopefully we feel part of that. Do we feel the weight of our angry outbursts and how that's storing up wrath for us? Do we feel the weight of our lustful thoughts, knowing that because of that, God's wrath is going to be poured out? Do we feel the weight of our self-seeking in our everyday lives? There is a day of dread beyond any description and compare that awaits all of us in our sin. And knowing the weight of sin is crushing. But being crushed can be a good posture before we hear God's invitation to us. See in chapter 2, verse 12. It says this, Yet. Oh, can you feel it? Can you take a deep breath when he says yet? Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. They deserve their current situation. Their sin has led them to a place where they deserve the locusts or the army, whatever they are, to bring total devastation into their camp. They deserve the day of the Lord to be a day of dread and judgment and wrath upon them. And yet, yet God extends His grace. His offer to them is to return. It's it's a much better offer than just saying, hey, why don't you fix things and, and I'll let the land produce again. Or I'll send the locusts away or the armies away. No, what is it? He's offering up something specific and it is Himself. Return to Me, He says. This reminds us, it reminds all the people of God that the best news is still God Himself. That the best news isn't that we just push away these locusts, that you guys have crops again. You need to return to Me. That that is the primary blessing that you are to receive. That that part of the judgment of God is not the devastation that you face, but the good that you're missing out of in relation with your good God. And so this is what He wants. Return to Me. So this is a repentance... A return that desires God Himself. He's not calling them to return to better things in the land or to return to better luck with your enemies. Return to Me. Return to Me, says God. And He says it specifically, return to Me with all of your hearts. Now that also says something about the nature of their sin. Joel gives no specifics about their sin. And, and maybe that's what we need today too. I, I don't know everybody's sin. I know my sin. I know some of it. We, we, don't, we don't know all the specifics here, but he's addressing them to return, to repent of their sin in general. But, but maybe we, we might get a sense of it here as there's just return to me with all of your heart, even without specifics. It, it might be that they looked fine outwardly. And you get a sense of that when you read Joel, that, that, that they had some outward ritual in place, that they were doing some things outwardly right. But here's what he says, all of your heart returned to me. God wants their heart. The law, he says, was summed up in what? Loving God, loving your neighbor. That, that is a heart. This is what God wants. He's after more than their actions. He wants more than just their outward display. He wants their heart. And so he says, here's how sinners are to return with all of your heart. A, a one word summary of chapter verses 12 and 13 is this word, repent. This is what he's calling for. Repent. Return. And it does involve actions. It does involve some outward things. What does it say? Fasting and weeping and mourning. But there's more to it than that. Much more. He says, rend your heart. Rip your heart, not just your garments. When they were confronted with their sin, they would often rip their garments in a display of sorrow before God. And he says, I don't just want your garments to be ripped. Rip your hearts open before your sin. Have sorrow over your sin and your brokenness that has caused distance between you and God. And so their sin, no matter what the specifics are, their main sin is departure from God. Maybe it was just they were going through the ritual, going through the routine, even maybe outwardly with their repentance going through the routine. And God says, no, I want your heart to be torn. 
We get, to, we get to see this over and over again in the Scripture. In, in 1 Samuel, there's two chapters in a row where you see this, this desire of God for the heart. So you see in, in 1 Samuel 15, there's this king, his name is King Saul. He's a little bit good, a lot bad. You know, right? He does some good things, he does some bad things. And one of the things he does is he doesn't carry out the word of the Lord one time. When God said, destroy everything... And when you take this camp, destroy the people, destroy the animals. And, and Samuel, the, the prophet of the time, rolls up and he, he hears sheep, which are supposed to be dead, right? He says, you did not obey. He said, well, i got all these sheep, we're going to offer them. No, he says, God desires obedience more than sacrifice. In other words, God wants your heart to submit to Him more than He wants your outward displays of worship. He wants your heart. In chapter 16, Samuel goes to find the next king, a king that God says, I'm going to find somebody that really is a man after my own heart. Samuel goes and he starts looking at all these, these sons of Jesse. And they're good looking guys. And he says, that must be one. This looks like a king. He says, no. What does God look on? Not the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. And so David is chosen. In Isaiah chapter 1, we see all these outward rituals. And God says, I'm tired of this. I don't want any of this because look at what you're doing in your lives. You're, you're not acting justly. You're, you don't care about the poor. You don't care about the people around you. So don't, don't do these ritual things and act like we're okay and that everything's fine here because that's not what's happening. He, he does the same thing. Jesus is really hard on, on one group of people. It's the, the really religious, pharisaical people that are outwardly doing things way better than we are. Right? Let's just be honest. They're killing us, right? Or they were. And Jesus is hard on them. Why? Because He doesn't just want your actions. Rend your heart, not just your garments. There is a sense that there's a false repentance, that there's outward actions only. Just a rending of your garments and not of your hearts. And, and my repentance is so weak that sometimes I don't even get there. Right? Do, you, do we even get to the outward sometimes? Like They would have shown a display of sorrow, probably. Weeping and mourning. Tearing their clothes, putting ashes on their heads. Now, true repentance is more than that, but I wonder, do we even get to that point? The true repentance involves both a ripping of the outward and a ripping of the heart. Sorrow over our sin. And our repentance so often is so weak. We don't understand the weight of our God and the weight of our sin before Him. One author said this about repentance, kind of helped defining repentance for us. The repentance is a grace of God's Spirit, whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. Putting that rending of your garments and your heart together. You are inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. And he gave six ingredients that I think are helpful for us when thinking about repentance. The six ingredients he gives of repentance. The first is, is side of sin. There's a recognition of your sin. You know your sin. And then there's a sorrow for it. You, you, you mourn over it. There's a sense that, I, that that's not what should be happening. And there's confession. You're actually declaring, this is what I've done. There's a shame felt for that. And then you moved a little bit, right? And not just shame, but you dislike the thing. You, there's hatred of your sin. And then the last, of course, is, is number six. Is if we just got to, I hate my sin, but I'll just keep doing it. Then you don't really hate it. Then you have to turn from it. You have to turn from your sin to God. Rend your hearts and your garments. That's what repentance looks like. Now, I don't know about you, but, but talk of judgment and repentance might bring up some interesting images in your head. I was in downtown Atlanta one time and walking around, and there, there were people, a couple different places, that were just carrying signs that talked about judgment and repentance. And one guy was just carrying this sign around, and the only thing he was saying over and over again, he was chanting, repent, repent, repent. Right, that's some of what comes into my mind when I think about judgment and repentance. It brings up that picture of that person holding the sign. But the call to return, the call to repent, is a gracious invitation from God. It's a gracious invitation from God that we see all throughout the Scripture. Right, the book of Acts, So if you just marked the word repent, you would see it often. What must we do to be saved? Repent. That's what they tell them. Repent. And they say it over and over and over again. This is what you should do. You should repent. When Jesus, in, in Revelation 2 and 3, is speaking to the churches, he, he often tells them, here's what you're doing good, here's some things I have against you, repent! That's what He tells them. This is the invitation from God to do the right thing. And I love this quote from Tim Kelly. He says that through Jesus, 
We don't need perfect righteousness. In other words, the the call isn't be perfect in your own righteousness. Get things going the right direction. No, he says what we need is just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. That is such good news for us. We do need perfect righteousness to stand before God, but it's not perfect righteousness that comes from us. What should and needs to come from us is repentant helplessness. This is what God is inviting us into. And so all of us today as sinners are alienated from God. We deserve judgment. And yet while we are still sinners, God is inviting us to repent. Amen. And we were reminded in, in Romans 5.8, what does He say? That while we are still sinners, Christ died for us? It's an invitation to turn from your sin. To turn and, and sin no more. That Jesus came, that he, he died, that He rose, that He withholds His judgment and wrath, even now, inviting us to repent and believe. So have you? Have you repented? Have you felt the weight of sin? Have you rended your hearts and your garments? Have you inwardly been humbled and outwardly been transformed? Like this is the way that God has made for us as sinners to, to gain access to Him is this repentance helplessness before Him. And we're reminded that this is a gracious call from God and that the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. What does it say at the end of verse 13 in chapter 2? It says, Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Joel uses these words that we saw in Moses in, in the book of Exodus that, that God was describing Himself. I'm a God who's, who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's reminding us of those words and saying that, that when He's speaking to the people of God, He's not saying that, that this is just a window in time that God is going to give you. And if you miss the window, like you're out of luck. No, He's saying like, this is who God is. We know Him to be this way. This is His character. It's been this way from the beginning. Moses talked about it. I'm talking about this is God's character. This is who He is. And because of His character, because of His mercy, those things are meant to motivate you toward repentance. Not to motivate you to continue on in your current lifestyle. Grace and mercy from God always compel toward repentance. They compel us toward action. This is who God is. Now Jonah, if you remember the prophet Jonah, we're not covering him in our short stint in the minor prophet. But Jonah knew of the character and nature of God. He knew him to be gracious. Knew him to be merciful. Knew him to be slow to anger. Knew him to be one who would relent from disaster. And so when God says to go say a message to his enemies, he's like, I'm not doing that. I know who you are, God. You'll, you'll forgive them. You won't bring disaster upon them. So he, he runs the other way. Joel knows the character and nature of God and he uses it to call people to action. Come. This is the character of God. He might relent over this disaster. And that's what he says in verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Even nursing infants. And let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. And between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep. That would have been the place for intercession. And say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? He calls them to action. He calls them to come together. He calls them to cry out to God that He might relent. Sinners deserve, deserve disaster upon them. But Joel calls them to action. That, that something else might happen if we repent from our sin. That God has invited us to repent. And, and what happens if we do? Maybe He'll relent, He says. But he goes even further than that. The prayer that he just called for in verses 14 through 17 is an awesome prayer that you should think about. What he's saying in this prayer is, is cry out to God to act, not because you're so good, but because God cares about his own name. Over and over again, this is what he's saying to them. You see it in, in verse 14. Who knows whether he'll relent? Why? Because they're going to make a grain offering and drink offering. Who? For the Lord your God. In other words, to His glory. That He would relent over disaster and that you would turn and praise Him and that He would be honored in this. In verse 17, He says, Why should they be a byword? This is the Lord's heritage. Why should they be a byword among the nations? Why should they say among the peoples, Where is your God? In other words, God's name is tied to you. And so cry out, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of God's name. Say, God, do something here. And He continues on. Verse 18. 
Here's the response we see from God when they turn and cry out and repent. That then the Lord became jealous for His land. And He had pity on His people. And the Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. That his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. And the stench and foul of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine, they give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down from for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. And the threshing floor shall be full of grain, and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, and my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So this is God when they respond with repentance, acting for the sake of His great name, and rolling back all of the judgment, all the devastation that He poured upon them, being extremely good to them. That He knows that the land is tied to the people. That the land and the people are both tied to the name of God. And so God acts and works for His name's sake here. And so He shows mercy. He's gracious. He relents. He displays His love. And rolling all these things back. Even the animals get their pastures back. Everybody is happy in this deal. The, the wine is overflowing. The people are cheering. Like you can imagine that like God is rolling these things back. That God answers to His people who would be inwardly humbled. Who would rend their hearts and not just their garments. And He rolls back their immediate problems. But it goes even further than that. That there's a, a, a forward looking uh, future that He's speaking about here that's good. And He continues on with that in verse 28. Many of you have probably heard this in the book of Acts. But He says, And it shall come to pass... Afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, that your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That God will restore to them, not just their land, not just their well-being, not just their economic status, not just their power among the other peoples. But He will restore them to Himself. What's the best news here? Again, that He says that I will come to you. I will reside with you. This is the best news, that He's going to pour His Spirit out on all flesh. And this is the whole point, right? This is the book of Joel summed up right there, is that God wants to restore relationship with Himself. This is the the summary of the Bible in a sense, that God is always working to restore people that are sinful and alienated from Him, restore them back to Himself. Not just to the land, not just to blessing. He wants to restore them back to Himself. Restoring relation with God is the point. And this restoration that Joel prophesies is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. That's what Peter says. He, He preaches on the day of Pentecost. He says... This has been fulfilled. This is done for you. That Jesus rose, that He sent the Spirit, and it came. Just as Joel prophesied, the Holy Spirit was given to all who believed, without distinction. Men, women, servants, priests, it didn't really matter. It was more than just for the people of Israel. It was for all, he says, who would call on the name of the Lord. All of them who call on the name of the Lord to be saved are going to receive God's very presence with them. And we, as New Testament, will get to look back and say, God did that. God was faithful to His promise in Acts chapter 2. He was faithful to what He said in Joel chapter 2. That this was more than just Israel. And that it was more than Israel to take out. That look, who's it sent on? That all of them are given the Spirit to prophesy. All of them are given 
a, a task and a service. Now, it's not just prophets who speak the word of the Lord. But now, the believers, those who have called upon the name of the Lord, they receive the very Spirit of God and all of them are sent. All of them are sent to make disciples. All of them are sent to then teach all that Jesus has commanded. All of them are now ambassadors of Christ. That Jesus and, and His death and resurrection and giving Him the Spirit have both saved and employed every single person who's called upon Him now. That we're all in the task together. That God doesn't just send His prophets, but He says of all of us, you have My Word, take it and teach it and make disciples of all of these nations. But part of Joel's prophecy is still yet to be seen, still remains unfulfilled. That, that oftentimes when the, the, the prophets speak, that they're looking out and they're seeing as if mountains in the distance. And, and what they see is they, they're saying lots of things all in one thing. So they're saying, like, we see this huge mountain range out here and it looks as if the mountains are together. They look really close together. But when you get up to Acts chapter 2, it's like, oh wait, there's still a mountain that's, that's actually pretty far a ways away, but Joel thought that they were pretty close. At least he spoke of them as if they were close. And that's what's happening here is that Pentecost was the fulfillment of some, but there's still that ultimate awesome day that he speaks about here at the end of chapter 2 that still awaits us. I don't know when the moon's going to turn to blood and all that kind of stuff. I don't have answers for you there. Alright? It seems to be still awaiting us. I know you're disappointed didn't get your money's worth a day, but it's the best I can do. We've had a few blood moons, and I did not interpret them as a prophet from the Lord, and I will not. So that is a, a mountain in the distance. But here's what we see, that those who called to the Lord, received His Spirit, were saved, and are going to be saved from that awesome day that He says awaits here. The salvation is present, yes, but it's also a future reality. That that day of the Lord is yet to come. That it will be a day of judgment and salvation, dread and glory, and that you need to be saved from that day. All of us still need salvation. We still need to be saved when the Lord appears. And sinful Israel had, had this prophesied prospect of restoration, though, with God. That I will send my very spirit to dwell in your midst. That I will come on a day that it is before you. That they have the prospect to turn to the Lord and be saved on that day. Rather than the dread of that day fall upon them. And we too have that option. That we as sinners deserve judgment. We deserve it now. We deserve it on that day. We deserve it ultimately. But we've invited, been invited by God to repent. And those who repent, those who truly rend their hearts and rend their garments, who call upon the name of the Lord, are given the Spirit and will be saved on that day. Amen. This is the reality that Joel speaks of. So, we deserve judgment and destruction, and we deserve it later. And yet, he invites us to repent, and we are saved now, and we will be saved later. What a difference. What a gap between what we deserve and what we receive by the grace of God. And that gap is meant to produce in us worship to God. Joy in God. Hope in God. Peace in God. All of those things that that gap is meant to produce. But the reality is, and you know this, that not all are going to repent. Not all are going to call on the name of the Lord. Not all are going to be saved. And so Joel, once again, like a good prophet, brings the hammer down where he needs to bring the hammer down. Right? He speaks of what they will receive who do not repent. And maybe he's including some of us too. Like, if you don't repent, here's what awaits. Chapter 3 says, Behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, that is, all the true people of God, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and on my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Alright, so mountain peaks again, right? Some of this they could have seen fulfilled, but also some of it is still at a distance, alright? He, he speaks of, in this prophecy, Tyre and Sidon, which they would have known, and God actually did act upon Greeks, Persians, however, wherever we are in the timeline here, God acted and made true on that promise, but there's still some mountains that are yet to be seen up close. And so he says, and 
Verse 11, we skip down. I'm just getting part of the imagery that's going on here. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. You know, you ought to know that this this imagery of wine vats and being shred is caught smashing out His wrath on people. That is a, a vivid picture of His wrath being poured out upon people. Multitudes, verse 14, and multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision, that the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. What's being described here sounds like, alright, this is a a gathering for for a contest. You bring your army, God will bring His army, and we'll we'll make a decision. This is the valley of decision. Make a choice. It's called the valley of decision. Or Valley of Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. God, the Lord, judges. And so this Valley of Decision is not a place where the nations are gathering to make their decision one way or another on the Lord. This Valley of Decision is a Valley of Judgment where the, the nations are assembled to hear and hear the declaration from the one who has already judged. They're there to hear the final verdict. They're there to hear the the gavel fall upon them in judgment. This is a place of justice. This is a place where they gather not to contend, but to hear from God. They do not get their voice and contention made before God. They have already done that. This is a place that they will hear God's final verdict. And the picture for those who don't repent, the picture of those who are evil, is a vivid picture of retribution. Of what you have done will be done to you. It's a vivid picture of justice. It's a vivid picture. That's smashing of the grapes. All the vivid pictures of the wrath of God upon those who don't repent. And let's make no mistake in thinking of this as a far off thing that you have time to to mess around with. In the New Testament over and over again, these writers are speaking of these things as if they're like about to be. They had a sense of urgency in it. And we ought to have that too, 2,000 years you know, later. That the day of the Lord could come in an instant. That this is not something that we just have time to twiddle our thumbs about and we'll figure out at a later time in this valley of decision. That's going to be the time when we're going to hear the judgment from God. Like, this is not something that we need to put distance between. In fact, 3.14 says that this day is near. And that everybody will go into that valley. And some that go in will be tread upon. But there are others. Verse 16. Great verse. The Lord roars from Zion. And He utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. Psalm 29. God utters His voice and it strips strips the forest bare. It makes the deer give birth. The voice of God makes the heavens and the earth shake. And the Lord is a refuge to who? His people. And a stronghold to the people of Israel. Israel, those who have trusted in Him. Those who have turned to Him. And so there's two conclusions in Joel that are described as the conclusion for all people. Verse 17, So you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shinnom. And Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desert, a desolate wilderness. Yes, God, bring that on. That's what they're saying, right? And for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. And I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Two groups in the valley. Two kinds of people. And here, we know that they're separated in a sense by nationality, but we know that He speaks of of further on, of another mountain peak, where their nationality is related to, are you in the true Israel Christ? Are you in that Judah? Are you in that people? And so the, the two people is not primarily separated by nationality, 
or by socioeconomic status, or, or by status in the world, whether you're strong or weak, whether your nation has great armies or weak armies, that you're not coming to this valley of decision doing battle to see who's the strongest, who's the superpower, and who's weak. What divides these two groups is clear. It's their relation with God. That's what's dividing in this valley. That when God appears, there are only two groups. Some seek to run against God and to war against Him. Ultimately, to no avail and are destroyed. That's one group. Some seek to run to Him for refuge. And ultimately to know, as it says in verse 17, that this is the Lord. He is God. Those are the groups. So while we await that day to come, that ultimate valley of decision, we're in one of these camps. And the Lord is gracious and merciful still. That His kindness in holding off that day should not make us think that He is slow to carry out His judgment, should not make us think that God has forgotten something, that He has maybe missed a part of the prophecy that He hasn't fulfilled yet. It should show us that He is patient. And that His kindness endures for a while longer. This is meant to lead us to repentance, Paul says. That the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And so the, what remains for us is to repent and call upon the name of the Lord. Because everyone who does shall be saved on that day. Amen. And so may the words of Joel remind us of what we deserve. It's worse than we think. Remind us of this invitation that we've been given. Move us to repentance and fill us with joy and hope at what we, we receive now and what we will receive in the future. Who turn our hope into the end, knowing that there is no dread and fear that awaits us anymore. Because the Lord is a refuge for His people. And we find that to be true now and on that day. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that you have withheld the judgment that we deserve. All of us in this room, whether they, we have trusted in you or not, have experienced your kindness in that. And we are thankful. So God, I, I pray that that kind of kindness, that kind of mercy would move us to action. For those who have never repented, I pray that they would be moved to repentance. And calling upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That they would receive your very presence. For those of us who have repented, God, I pray that you would help us to live a life of repentance. Knowing that the great and ultimate good is continued relationship with you. The sin drives a barrier in that, God. That we're not ultimately cast off. God, we want to know you more. We want to live for you more. So help us to not just repent one time. Help us to feel the weight of our sin and the weight of your glory and to live a life of repentance until that day. God, we know that for those who have repented, glory awaits. May we long for that day, knowing that we're trusting you to deliver us even then. For those who don't know you, may the dread of that day fall upon them. They might see the good news that is offered. In all of it, God, we're asking for the sake of your name that you would work in us. Amen.